I acknowledge that you're all not on vacation, except perhaps, perhaps the guests that are with us that may be on vacation, and welcome to you. Um, it's a strange time in the year. It's a time that we look at and think, well, now I'll get some rest. I'll go away and get some rest. And how stupid we are. I mean, it's just tiring thinking about going away and getting some rest. And, uh, and then when we do it, it's, we don't do it right, do we? We go away and get some tired. But there's so many things that uh, happen in our lives. I was thinking about how we often will go maybe once every year or two to an amusement park. When Ben was in high school, we went to, he's our, our oldest, our son, and we went to, um, Ben was in the marching band, he played the sousaphone. You know, the big, the big thing, the big thing above your head. And at that time, they had a deal at an amusement park called Cedar Point, which is in northern Ohio, Sandusky, where you could go with your marching band to Cedar Point, bring all of their uniforms and all of their instruments on a bus, uh, park, get them all dressed. They would go into the park in the middle of the hottest days of the year. They would march through the park, and uh, as, as a reward for that, after they were all done and exhausted and you were exhausted as a booster parent, then they would change their clothes, you would help them pack things on the bus, and they would have some hours in the park uh, doing the things you do in the park. Which, what do you do when you're in an amusement park? It's not as amusing as you may think. And when you're older, it's especially true. And so when you get into the amusement park, uh, what you do is you wait. That's what amusement parks are for. They're for waiting. And so you get in these, um, it's so dehumanizing. You get into these uh, cattle pens and you, you walk back and forth and back and forth and you spend, I don't know, to get on a 153 second ride, you might spend three hours in these cattle pens. And when you're older, you think, Three hours is a lot of life. I don't have a lot of three-hour segments left. And it's not that fun. You know, you get forward a half an hour, and you make a turn, and you come back 180, and you see these people again, and you know how you do. The banter in the line as you talk, and then you, you think, why am I here at all, right? Waiting and waiting and waiting so that you can have some amusement. Waiting can take its toll, and we spend a lot of, our, of the time of our lives waiting. Uh, if you were young and you remember a time when you rode a school bus, you might have waited for the bus. You might spend time waiting in the doctor's office. Uh, they've, they've gotten a lot better at this now recently in this area, but I used to spend a lot of time at the BMV waiting, right? You'd spend a lot of time waiting only to be told you didn't have the right paperwork, right? You might be waiting for a baby to be born. You might be waiting for Friday, because Friday is when the work week closes. You might be waiting for Christmas, because you really love the Christmas season, right? We spend a lot of time in our lives waiting, and this morning I want to talk about this theme to you and look at what the Scripture says about 
how God's people wait on the Lord. And as a way to prepare ourselves for it, I want to go through Old Testament patriarchs and some New Testament people and just talk about certain instances instances of their lives as they were waiting. So let's start with Noah. We know the story of the flood. Did you see the rainbow, any of you, yesterday? Wasn't that beautiful? Always stop to look if there's a rainbow. It's, it's, uh, it's established to, for you to remember something and for God to remember something. He says, I put it there to show you that I won't do something and to make sure to remind myself that I won't do something, and that is destroy all the world with water. And when you look at it, it's quite beautiful. And there aren't many things you can see that are so grand. And I was talking to somebody yesterday, and I said, you know, nobody ever sees the same rainbow. Because everywhere you are, it's a different way that the light is refracting on different drops of water. And so even if I'm standing right next to you, we're not actually seeing the same rainbow, but it is kind of the same rainbow, you understand? What an amazing thing to see. And so you have Noah, and Noah is about 500 years old when his children are born to him. And I can't find anywhere in the scripture where it tells how long it is between the time God tells him what he needs to do and the time when God accomplishes what he sends forth for Noah to be a part of, that is the flood. So he's 500 when his children are born to him, that's what it says. He's 600 or thereabouts when the flood happens. So you've got a 100-year space of time when either he's finding out from God what's going to happen and or he's building the ark and or he's gathering the animals and doing all the things that have to be done. A hundred year space of time where Noah in some ways is working, but it also in some ways, what is he doing? He's waiting because it's not time yet until one day when God says, it's time. Now we're going to do it. How about Abraham and Sarah? God promises Abraham that he's going to give him a son and that the son is going to be the seed of promise to him. And so Abraham and Sarah expect that God will give them this son. And the reality, we're going to come back to their story later on, but the reality of Abraham and Sarah is that they spend a long time waiting, and Abraham is how old when they finally have this son? He's 100 years old, and Sarah is what? Past childbearing. Does it say actually how old she is? 95? I can't read lips. What is it? Did you say, Danny? 90? Let's take a poll. 90? All right. 95? I think 90 has it. So Sarah is 90 years old and past childbearing years. And so they wait and wait and wait until God fulfills the promise to them. How about Job? Job has to wait through the work of God, allowing Satan to test him and test him and test him. And Job waits through all that time, and he sits finally in a pile of ashes with a piece of broken pottery, and he scrapes on his sores. You know, you don't even want to imagine. And Job is there, and he's still waiting. And then God turns the tables, right? And and then God gives Job what? What does God give him at the end? Do you remember? Double. He gives him twice as what he twice what he allowed Satan to take away, God gives him back. But let me ask you something. Did you ever think about how, how God gave him twice as many cows, camels, donkeys, sheep, 
Rolls Royces, children. How, many, how long did it take God to give that stuff all back to him? Did suddenly he have twice as many children that fast? Even then, Job had to wait as God restored his fortunes to him. Job waited on the Lord and always trusted him and never cursed him. How about Joseph? Joseph, a young man, when he saw visions of his future, but after he saw those visions, he sold into slavery. He spends years in servitude, years in prison, years leading the people of Egypt, and then after he's restored to his family, spends some more years, and at the end of those years, he comes to the end of his life, and he knows that there's still something else that's supposed to happen with God's people that isn't supposed to happen for 400 more years. So he has his body embalmed according to Egyptian tradition and practice, and he says to everybody before he has his body embalmed, he says, when it happens that God fulfills his promise... Be sure and take my bones with you to, to uh, Canaan when you move up to Canaan, when God gives you the promised land. Take my bones with you. It isn't going to happen for what? Four more years? Forty more years? Four centuries. Four hundred years. Joseph's bones waited, but Joseph knew about God and he knew that God was faithful to, to produce and to fulfill all the promises. And they carried his bones out. 400 years later, the people waited in Egypt. And 400 years later, all those people left Egypt. Not the people that came to Egypt at the beginning. Not the children of those people or the children of those people or the children of those people. But 400 years later, however many generations it took, those people fulfilled the promise of God or they were there in the fulfillment of the promise of God, he used them and he took them out of Egypt and they didn't wait longer. Right? And Joseph's bones went with them. And then Joshua and Caleb, they of all the people of that generation that were older, were allowed to go into the promised land. They weren't cursed with the disobedient ones, but what did they have to do? Wait. They had to wait until everybody else died, until the curse on the disobedient ones came to pass. Forty years they walked in the desert burying people. For 40 years, that's what they did. They walked and walked and buried people, waiting for the day that all the people would be dead, that had to die, before they went into the promised land. What about David, King David? He knows he's supposed to be the king but he's not yet established on his throne. Saul is still king, and David is waiting. He's not impatient. He's not pushing. He's not trying to kill Saul. He's waiting. What about the other part of David's waiting? Did you ever think about David's sin? Did you ever think about David having sinned against Uriah and against God and having God tell him that that child is going to die? And then David had to wait through the sickness, until finally the death comes. How about later, when David sins again? And God says, you counted the people, you took a census in your own vain attempt to see how great you are. This is abhorrent to me, and so I will judge you. And so David got to choose the judgment. He chose that he would fall into the hands of God because he knew God was more benevolent than anybody else he could fall into the hands of. And God sent an angel 
to slay. And how many days was it that the angel was slaying the people of Israel, killing them? And all that time David waited and prayed until it would be finished, until it was done. We even wait for sin, for the, the uh, effects of sin. How about God's people waiting in Babylon, longing for the holy city? How about all the prophets of the Old Testament giving utterance to things that would come to be that they would not see in their lives, waiting for what, would God, what God would accomplish? How about when you come to the New Testament? You have Simeon and Anna. I think she was 84 years old. They had the promise that they would see the Messiah. And they waited all through their lives, going to the temple, praying, waiting, waiting, waiting until they would see the promise God had given to them. How about the disciples in the upper room? Forty days waiting. Cornelius the centurion, a God-fearer who gave his offerings, who loved God's people, who believed in God, and did not have a connection to God that God had made, was not connected to God in a way where it was revealed to him his chosenness from God, until one day... God in his wonderful providence sends uh, Peter to Cornelius and Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit. How old was he? How long had he loved God and loved God's people? And he waited. He didn't even know what he was waiting for. He didn't even know what was in store for him. Especially as a Gentile. How about Paul when he says he's waiting for Christ to be formed in his people, in his spiritual children? How about the church waiting for the bridegroom to come, for Christ to come again? All through the scripture you see waiting. You see people waiting. A, a week, 40 days, a year, 10 years, 40 years, 100 years, 400 years, 1,000 years. They waited. Do you think they got tired? You know how you are when you're at the amusement park and you're standing in those lines and you're just, you're tired. You're just really tired. Kids are even tired in the amusement parks. You know, they start whining. Old people get tired, but we can still stand up because the arthritis kind of freezes us up, right? But you're tired and the people in the scriptures, do you think they got tired as they waited? Do you think they got weary? Do you think they worried? Do you think they had thoughts they shouldn't have had? Do you think they wondered what would happen? Well, certainly they did. Certainly they did. And this is what I want us to look at this morning from Isaiah chapter 40. In chapter 39, you have Isaiah telling Hezekiah, the king, that Israel would be taken away into captivity into Babylon. But it wouldn't happen in Hezekiah's lifetime. And then in chapter 40, what you have is Isaiah prophesying about the state of the people in the day that they will be taken away into Babylon and what it will be like for them. So it's a prophecy to the people that aren't there yet, that aren't in the place where they're going to be yet. And of course, like the rest of the book of Isaiah, it's filled with, with uh, references to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. So let's read together. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, 
that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Have you been out to look at I-69 as they're building it? Have you gone out to see the various places? You can start down by Crane where it actually is done, all the way up to 231, I think, that goes north and south. The, the highway is done. And then as you come this way, you see that, oh, I'm sorry, if you start over at, at, uh, at 37, down here by Victor Pike or whatever Pike that is, right? You start down there and you see all they've done is started scraping away the trees. <coughs> you drive through some of these back roads and you see that there's huge swath that's, that is a specific width that's been completely denuded. All the trees are gone. All the bushes are gone. Everything's cleared off. And when you look at it, you say, well, okay, they're making the way, but there's a problem. This is going to be one bumpy highway. Because you see the hills, and they come down this way, and they come down that way, and they just go up this way and down that way, and you realize that it's not ready yet for the, for the concrete. And then you go further down to where the, where the part is complete, and you see the machinery as it works. And what they're doing is they're taking all the hills, and they're chopping them off, and they're taking all the valleys, and they're filling them up. And they're making a broad and level path, right? And so here you have in the Scripture that very image as they're making way in preparation for Jesus Christ and for him to be revealed. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, verse 5, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So the people of God call out to those around them, and they say, this is God. This is he. And so Paul said that when he went into Athens, right? He said to them, you have lots of gods. I notice you have lots of idols, but I want to tell you, this is God. The God. I want to introduce you to him. And that's what the people of the church do. They introduce people to God. And it's part of our work. And our work makes us weary. But let's go on. Behold, the Lord God will come with might and his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock and in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord 
or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. If you took all the trees in Lebanon and all of the animals and you made a fire and you made an offering, it wouldn't be enough for God. Not enough. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Let's get the balance right on our idol so it doesn't fall over. My God doesn't want to fall over. Let's make sure it's well balanced. Good center of gravity, right? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I will be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift your, your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. For how long? For how long will they do this? For how long will they wait on the Lord? For 10 years? What's your attention span? What's your attention span? Can you wait on the Lord for 10 years? 10 years is the amount of time that's elapsed since I last preached on this text. Just so you know. 10 years. And in that amount of time, I did not know what kind of waiting I would do on God. I didn't know what would happen to me. I didn't know the circumstances that would go on in 10 years. I can tell you a few of them now, afterwards, and you can think later to yourself about your last 10 years. In the last 10 years, 
I had to be comforted over the death of my father. That was a significant thing. I had two children finish high school. I had many comings and goings of various trials in my life related to my sin and the sins of others. I oversaw the building of a condo, the building of two houses, the building of a church building. I participated to some degree, right? With all those things in the last 10 years. I've had two weddings of my children. That's not even your weddings. I've had the births of six grandchildren. I've seen dozens of loved ones Come and go. Come and go from here. Come and go. Some of them went into eternity. And so I can't even see them at a reunion until the reunion. Right? And so we're waiting about those things. I've waited on God all through this time, and I've waited on him consciously often, saying, when will I be different? When will I change? When will I be new? When will you affect that in me? And if you look back over all those things, guess what? That's the answer over 10 years. Weddings, funerals, work, God affecting change in me. We all wait for things like this. We're all in the process of waiting for things, and they're all connected to us spiritually. They're not just abstract. They're not unspiritual. You say, well, wait a minute. You built houses, or you, you oversaw building houses. How is that spiritual? Trust me. Everything you do is spiritual. Everything you do is connected. It's connected to God and to your faith. Everything that happens to you. It's not an accident. And so we live our lives and we we wait on God for prayers to be answered. And you think, I prayed the prayer this morning, why hasn't it been answered yet? And then you think, I prayed the prayer a month ago, why hasn't it been answered yet? And then you forget about praying the prayer until five years later and you look back and you say, wow, (laughs) look what happened. I did pray a prayer, didn't I? And look what happened. But it happens in the context of waiting. It happens in the context of waiting with fatigue and difficulty. And so we wait for our circumstances to improve. We want different circumstances. We want things to get better. And the fact is we're always either going one way or another. It's like the roller coaster at the amusement park. Our circumstances are either just flying so fast we're not even paying attention or things are going so slow as we go up the hill that you know, we think we'll never get to the top, right? Or maybe we're waiting for the completion of the temporal effects of our sin. Remember what happened with David. He sinned against Uriah and against God, and God brought on him temporal judgments. Well, all of our sins have some kind of judgments, and maybe we're only waiting until, because we can't get to the person yet that we need to go apologize to for how we sinned against them. Maybe that's it. And we just have to wait through the weekend. And we have the the reality of our conscience afflicting us because we haven't asked for forgiveness yet. 
Or maybe it's a sin that we committed and it has more effects than that and it might last for weeks. Or maybe we'll pay the, the consequences of a sin in our lives over the period of months or even decades, years and decades. And yet God takes all of those consequences and effects and over the period of decades, we'll get to a certain point and we'll look back and we'll say, yes, I sinned, but I lived waiting on God. And God took the effects of my sin and he sanctified me through them. I had to endure them. I had to live them. I had to trust in God and be strengthened by him in them. And it's even my sin that he did this with. And so we wait, even in the effects of our sin. We wait for the passing of persecution, perhaps from family members. And isn't it interesting that God sometimes takes away persecution by saving people? <laughs> you know? They were our enemies, and then, and then at some point, God just saves them. And they're our brothers in Christ. What a kindness. We wait for that special someone to come along. We wait for the parousia, the second coming of Christ. We went down to uh, Montgomery, is that the name of the town? And uh, this past week with my mother, who's here with us, and, and we stopped at this shop where they sell this stuff. You know the stuff, the, the, the globes that you put in your yard, and the little statues, and they have some wrought iron stuff, you know, and I've got a car with three women, I'm going to stop and look at stuff, Right? I stopped. I also went to the wagon wheel shop with the, uh, you know, the Amish wagons. That was kind of my thing. They sat in the car. So I'm looking at the stuff, and, I, and there's this, this woman has a shop, and it's, the door's open, and she's standing there painting. So I walk in, and she's painting this concrete bust of Mickey Mouse. And then on the ground next to it is a concrete statue of Jesus, you know, a hippie Jesus of some kind kneeling and praying. And I looked at her and I said, I hope you're not going to put both of them in the same yard. And she laughed. And, I, and I, she just started talking. I said, you know, it's wonderful your shop faces east here because in the afternoon when you're working, you don't have the sun coming in making you all hot. She said, well, she said, it's even more wonderful that when Christ comes back, I'll see him come. And she said, we talked some more and she started talking. And uh, I was outside looking around. She said, I just... I just hope he comes soon. That's what she said. I hope he comes soon. And we go back and forth depending on how much of the world we've got sticking to us at any given time to, to not even thinking about him coming back and to the point where we say, oh, please, please, please come back soon. I think if I was painting Mickey Mouse statues, I'd want him to come back soon. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? We live that kind of life. But God says, expect him to come. Wait. Wait on him. We, we wait for the redemption of our bodies when this will be over. We wait for the judgment of the wicked when evil men will be judged by God. God calls us to wait. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to be assured of what we hope for and convicted of what we have not seen. That's what he says faith is. And although his revelation is complete, 
For Christ has come in the flesh. Our obedience is not complete, and we must wait upon the Lord. And we're not always good at waiting. Uh, we, we tend to do other things instead of wait. We tend to, um, instead of waiting on the Lord, we tend to wait and think that the world is going to be our answer. So we look for solutions in salvation from worldly saviors. I was walking yesterday in the park with Kimmy, and I was talking about this sermon, and I was talking to her about years that are to come and what they might contain, because I had been thinking about my own life and what had happened in the past 10 years. And I said, these are the things that you're going to have to live with, and you're going to have to wait on God, and you're going to have to live by faith. But there's a truth, and the truth is that some people here will not wait on the Lord. You will not wait on the Lord. And you'll solve your life's problems by looking to saviors from this world. You'll look to the world to give you the schedule for your lives, and you will not live with the inconvenient association that's had with God when you live in this world as a child of God. Jesus said in John chapter 16, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world, but in the world you will have tribulation. Take courage. I have overcome the world, but in the world you will have tribulation, but not if you don't live with Christ. That tribulation can be erased because you can look for the world to save you in the ways that the world saves you, with money, with comfort, with peace, with pleasure, with entertainment, and etc., and etc. Or we don't wait for the Lord. Instead, we take matters into our own hands. And can you imagine... Uh, being a farmer, and you know, do any? Not many of us are farm people from years back, but I think we have a pretty good idea of some of the basics of farming, right? Did you do something in school with a seed and a a cup, right? The reality is here in Indiana, what you don't want to do is when you get your tomato plants about this high, you've got them in your house, you're growing them in a window box, and the tomato plants are about this high. It's not that time, if it's, if it's uh, the first week of December, it's about time for you to take those tomato plants out and set them out in the garden. Because everybody knows that tomatoes do thrive through December and January out in Indiana in the garden, right? And you may want to plant your beans at the same time because, my, the beans will thrive, won't they? Right out here in Indiana at about 25 degrees, the beans are just going to sprout you're going to be out there sweeping the snow off and picking beans, right? And that's what it's like when we take things in our own hands. We say, God, I'm not going to wait on you. I'm going to take things into my own hands. And it has all the productivity of planting beans in December in Indiana. We do a lot of work, and we get nothing. Zero. God says, wait for me, I will bring about a wonderful thing for you, but you're not going to bring about it through, the, through taking matters into your own hands. That's what Abraham and Sarah did when God said, I, I'll give you a child of promise. Sarah said, here, I'm not having a baby, I'm tired of waiting, so quick, take Hagar and have a baby with her. So they have Ishmael, and 
Abraham looks to God and he said, oh, that Ishmael may live in your sight, that he would be the child of promise. And God says, no, that's your plan, that's not mine. Waste the time. Waste the time thinking that you could produce the child of promise. And then God miraculously brings Isaac, right? How about Saul, the king, his sacrifice? He's tired of waiting for Samuel, and so he just goes ahead and does the sacrifice. And Samuel comes and says, what have you done? How about Simon the magician saying, wow, these guys are powerful. I wish I could have this power. So he pulls out his wallet. How much, how much do I pay you to get this? How much do I pay you to be able to heal people? Right? And he wants to short circuit what God may not intend for him at all. Make something happen. And so rather than resting, even resting in difficulty, even resting, resting in adversity, even resting in persecution, even waiting on God when we're tired, when we're exhausted, when we think, wow, I've never been this tired. I've never been through this much difficulty. We wait on God. We trust in God. We don't go out and try to drum something up. We don't go and buy another precious Bible promise book with, and some, some coffee with a higher caffeine rate in it and think, I'll get past this, I'll, I'll, phew. And you never notice the precious Bible promise books. They don't talk about the promises of tribulation, right? I was talking in the first service, and Tim Wagoner and I have conspired that we're going to produce a, a real precious Bible promise book with the real stuff in it. In this world, you will have tribulation. They hated me, they'll hate you. Woohoo! Now we live with the promise in the middle of the tribulation, in the middle of the hate, in the middle of the opposition. We wait on God. This is our lives. This is living in obedience to Him. We don't take matters into our own hands. Another thing we're tempted to do is to despair. And so that's why the, the Isaiah the prophet writes at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 40, verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Has God forgotten? Can God forget? No. He has not, and he cannot, and he will not. He wants us to live in dependence on him and stop thinking about all the questions we have, the what-ifs, 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 but to trust in him. And so we need to remember God's power, his character, his patience. Perhaps my favorite verse in Isaiah 40, it is, do you not know? Have you not heard? He says it again. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Hey, stupid. Do you not know? Have you not heard? He made everything. He made you. You're like grass. He sits on the circle of the earth. He makes kings and judges. This is your God. Don't you know who he is? Don't you know his power? Don't you know his character? Don't you know his patience with you? Second Peter chapter 3 
But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. How will God work his love out in the lives of your family members and your neighbors and your children? Perhaps through your pain. Did you ever think about that? And it's because he loves them and he loves you. And he's patient, not wanting anyone to come to, to perish, but all to come to repentance. Remember God's power, his character, his patience. Resist temptation. We're all vulnerable when we have waited for a time. Doubts assail us. We're tempted to take matters into our own hands. Resist temptation. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you've ever, um, how many of you have ever fasted? Right? I had a friend and he, he rightly said that they should not call it fasting, they should call it slowing. Because you have this incredibly heightened sense of everything your flesh wants when you fast. And that heightened sense just makes time go so slowly because really you end up thinking about nothing but when you can finally eat. But then if God is kind and you look to God, you actually get some spiritual benefit because you realize that God is the giver of everything to you. And finally, that real life comes through Jesus Christ, not through Big Macs, right? Resist temptation. Remain in him. Don't leave the place of the faithful disciple. Read the scripture. Pray. Remember Christ in the sacrament. Give joyfully. Love one another. Go to small group. Take care of one another. Mourn with one another. Laugh with one another. Be a part of the church. Give yourself to the church in faith. Do not leave the place of the faithful disciple. We all together live as branches tied into the vine. John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, you're the branches. Life, nourishment comes through me, to you, through you into fruit. You didn't do nothing, but abide in me. So abide in me, remain in him. Do not leave the place of the faithful disciple. Trust in God. I know some of you are weary. I know some of you are tired. There's always some that are weary and some that are tired. Most of us, a lot of the time. All of us, some of the time. And this morning, what you must do is you must wait on God. Wait on God. I don't know what, what place you're in in the waiting. In other words, you may be in a, 
you may be simultaneously be in a three-day, ten-day, one-year, ten-year, fifty-year cycle of waiting. Do you understand? You're constantly in multiple places and multiple kinds of waiting for different reasons. And all I'm telling you is that God says, when you're tired, wait for Him. And that He has power to renew you and give you life. Believe what He says. He has power to do it. And when He renews you, it will just be so that you can enter into the next cycle. (laughs) Right? With the purpose of one day entering into the place of permanency. And that's what we're finally waiting for. The place of the permanent presence of God. When these times of difficulty and trials are done. And when we're with Him face to face. And we don't need any light because He gives us light. And we don't need any food because He is our food. I don't know how that works. But wow, I know it does. I don't know how we'll be able to stand the light of God. It says he dwells in inapproachable light. Inapproachable. And when we're in his presence, we'll be in that inapproachable light. How does that work? Yeah, yeah. How does that work? But it does. Through Jesus Christ, it works. Because God has made us able through his son to approach him and come to him. And finally, it is in him that we find rest for our souls. I want to close by reading Psalm 40. So you got Isaiah 40. This is for you to remember, okay? 40, 40, okay? Isaiah 40, Psalm 40. Another place about waiting on the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet on a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord. You know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. 
Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Trust in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Let him renew you. Don't find yourself running from his oversight and his power, but run to it and ask him, Plead with him, even as the psalmist does there at the end. Plead with him not to delay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and we recognize in our lives over years the reality of our need of you because of others' sins, because of our sins, because of the reality of living in this world where there is tribulation. We ask, Father, that you will make us to trust in you, that we will have faith, that we will believe, that we will rest in you, that we will be assured in you, that we will not turn to the right or to the left, that we will not seek to take matters into our own hands, that we will not despair. But, Lord, give us faith and hear our prayer and restore us and give us strength. Give us wings like eagles that we can fly. Give us new strengths. Give new strength to the young, give new strength to the middle-aged, give new strength to the old, and cause us all, Lord, to look to you and to live by faith, remaining in Christ Jesus, our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.